So up to this point in the ministry and life of Jesus, his preaching and his work has mainly drawn antagonism and anger from the religious establishment. But as we come to this miraculous sign, the feeding of the 5,000, and by the way, this is the only miracle outside of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ himself that is recorded in all four of the Gospels, and we're going to look at all four of the Gospels in order to fill in some of the, the, the spots of this narrative as we work through it this morning. But now, as you come to this feeding of the 5,000, you start to see the ministry of Jesus beginning to threaten, beginning to clash with, beginning to, to rub up against the political establishment. So, again, up to this point, the teaching and miracles of Jesus had been grating against the religious institutions in Israel. As his preaching threatened the status, it threatened the standing, it threatened the respect of the religious leaders among and in the eyes of the Jewish peoples. Jesus, you see, also was continually, clearly, and publicly calling on all the Jews, every single Jew in Israel, including the religious leaders themselves, to repent. Now, the thing about the religious leaders is they thought they were above repentance. I don't need to repent. I am one of the religious leaders among the peoples. And as Jesus went ministering to the, the people of Israel, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the Jewish leaders didn't think they needed it. They didn't think they needed to confess their sin. They didn't think they needed to ask the Lord to forgive them or to turn away from their sin to the Lord. They didn't think they, that that was even an issue for them. They thought they were serving the Lord, but they weren't. And so Jesus went continually, clearly, and publicly correcting them and exposing them and publishing the errors of their teaching to the crowds, and this generated from them a tremendous level of anger and hostility. And this was not just some low-level simmering anger. No, this was a, a passionate anger. An anger that is so aggressive, an anger that is so bitter that it led these supposed religious leaders to clasp their hands with the formerly or their poisonous, nasty enemies, the Herodians. The religious leaders hated the Herodians. And here they are grabbing hands with them. For what? As we read in Mark 3. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, against Jesus, how to destroy him. So you see, so far the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ has been inspiring the anger of the arrogant. It always does, it always has. It inspires the anger of the proud, of the self-seeking religious leaders here who hope to protect the status quo. This is what the gospel does, right? It reveals and it exposes the sinful state of your heart. It reveals and it exposes the sinful state of my own heart. It tells the truth. And here is the truth. You are not great. I am not great. Jesus is great. The world that we live in does not revolve around you. It does not revolve around me. It revolves around Christ. And the religious leaders thought this is that, they, that the world revolved around them. And here comes Jesus saying, you must beg the Lord for forgiveness. You must repent of your sin. You must submit and bow your knee to the King, the Lord of all, Jesus Christ, in humble faith and trust. Now a message like that 
draws the sneers of the arrogant and the foolhardy. And as Matthew makes clear in chapter 14, verse 1, not only did this ministry of Jesus raise the anger of the religious leaders, but if you see in 14.1, the increasing fame of Jesus has now also caught the attention of Herod. Herod, the ruler, the tetrarch over the region of Galilee, has now taken notice of Jesus, his teaching, and his ministry. Much of Jesus' ministry up to this point has taken place in Galilee. This is the area where Herod Antipas governed on behalf of the Romans. And there was a large segment of Israelites uh, who despised Herod because they hoped for and agitated for and fought for, to varying degrees, Jewish independence from Rome. They wanted more than anything else to return to the freedom of self-governance that they once enjoyed under David and under Solomon. And this desire for the reestablishment of an autonomous, sovereign nation of Israel burned deep inside their bones. But along with these types who were burning for the reestablishment of, a, of an autonomous Israel, there were also these other Jews who supported Herod for various reasons, who supported Roman occupation and rule not the least of which was the political convenience, the advantage and the security of having Herod rule over them. And the Jews who supported Herod, these were called the Herodians. And so you see, these are two groups that are completely at odds with one another. One wants a free, independent, liberated, autonomous Israel. The other said, we like Herod, we like his rule, we like Rome. These two groups never uh, agreed on anything. They avoided each other. They didn't get along. They spoke disparagingly of one another until, that is, they agreed on one thing. Jesus has got to go. The Jews were willing to, to toss their supposed convictions aside to link arms and to clasp hands with the Herodians because they found common cause with them. Neither of them wanted Jesus threatening their security. If you're a religious leader who lives by the, by the adulation and adoration of the people, you don't want Jesus threatening that. If you're a Herodian or, a, or someone who supports Herod and the people are starting to look to Jesus as a possible king who might liberate the people from Herod, you don't want that. And so they come together and they start hatching a plot to kill Jesus. John's Gospel actually records more explicitly the political dimensions of this feeding, and we're going to get to those as we come to the end of this message. But we're going to work through it now, and the narrative begins in verse 13. And you start with these, these words, Now when Jesus heard this. Now we don't know exactly what, caused, what Jesus heard that caused him to withdraw from the region is actually debated, but it can only contextually be two things. It can only be, first, that he heard the news of John the Baptist's beheading at the hands of Herod Antipas, and how easily it came to pass that Herod revealed himself to be a weak, intemperate, insecure, impulsive man. We see all of those character traits in the first 12 verses of chapter 14. Now remember, we talked about this last week, 
Herod and Herodias had both divorced their first spouses in order to be with each other in an illicit, adulterous relationship. And John the Baptist, being the holy and righteous man that he is, or that he was, continually called them out on it. Saying to Herod in Mark 6.18, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And so if you read the, the differing or the, the, all of the narratives of this relationship between Herod and John, you see that there was kind of a love-hate relationship that Herod had for John. On the one hand, Herod sometimes wanted to put John to death. He hated being called to account for his sinfulness. But he avoided that course of action because the crowds considered John to be a holy man. They considered him to be a prophet. And at other times... Herod considered John a righteous man, a holy man, and he heard John gladly, as we read in Mark 6.20. So Herod had this kind of bouncing back and forth uh, relationship with John, but Herodias, the woman that Herod was with, she despised John. There was no bouncing back and forth for her. She hated him. She held a grudge against him for consistently publicly rebuking their relationship. And so Herod had a birthday party. And as Herod and his guests imbibed, as they drank and reached a drunken stupor, as the parties, as people in, at parties during this time generally were encouraged to do, the daughter of Herodias came in, stood in front of all these men, and danced a suggestive dance in front of them all. And now sexually excited Herod, in front of all of the guests, in his drunkenness and in his state of excitement, made a promise in Matthew 14, verse 7. He promised to give her whatever she might ask. And Herodias now finally had her chance to exact revenge on John. And she prompted her daughter to ask for John's head on a platter right now. Now a stronger man, a man with integrity, a man with fortitude of leadership, would have instead of immediately beheading John, clarified what he meant when he made that offer to her. I didn't mean executing a human being, I meant some accolade or some riches or maybe some position of status. But Herod was not such a man. Fearing what the guests might think, he granted her request and had John the Baptist beheaded immediately. Herod proved what kind of man he was here by valuing, the reputation, valuing his reputation with the party guests over the life of the holy, righteous John the Baptist. What sort of weak, feeble man was this? See, real godly men don't look to the world to save face. They look to Christ and try to imitate Him. So this might have been what Jesus heard. He heard what sort of man Herod was and how easily he was duped into putting John the Baptist to death. And that might have caused his withdrawal. But it could have also been the fact that his ministry, his miraculous works, his teaching have drawn Herod's attention. They've caught the attention of the ruler. And now Herod assumed, as you read in the text, that this is John raised from the dead. And who knows what Herod is going to do? Herod has already beheaded John once, and now he thinks John the Baptist is alive again. What is he going to do? What's to stop him from attempting to do it again? And so Jesus, knowing this wasn't his time, you will see that's a consistent refrain throughout the Gospels. Jesus knew when his time to depart was. Jesus, knowing it wasn't his time, departed from there. 
Most likely, when it says Jesus heard these things, these are together, both of these are the things that he heard, and it led to him withdrawing from the region. So where did he go? Well, Matthew tells us that Jesus, look at 14, 13 again, withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. So John is a little bit, the Apostle John is a little bit more descriptive. He said, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, meaning that John, he, Jesus left the area over which Herod Antipas governed for a short time. Now look, Jesus left in a boat. That's the same boat that Peter will step out of to walk on the water in just a few verses. But for now, Jesus went in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Now the by himself there doesn't mean that he went alone, as in he went solitarily, but that he went by himself to be alone with his disciples. So why the need to be alone with the disciples? Because sometimes when you're reading the text, you can see, right, way back in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sent the disciples out on mission, starting in verse 5, right? Jesus sent the twelve out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, and he sent them out on a mission. And it's been a long time since we've covered that text, but here, they've only recently returned from their being sent out. Jesus sent them out with the message to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he gave them authority to heal the sick and to raise the dead and to cleanse lepers and to cast out demons. And while they were out doing that, Jesus himself went ministering to the cities in the region. And as we read in Matthew 11.1, 1, when Jesus had finished instructing his disciples about their task and message, he went out from there to preach in their cities. Now, such a ministry is difficult labor. And after their time ministering in the cities, they returned to Jesus in chapter 12, where Jesus is immediately questioned. Remember, the disciples start plucking grain in the field on the Sabbath. And they immediately start, the, the religious leaders immediately go to the disciples and they question him. They question Jesus. Why do your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Chapter 12, verse 2. And at the conclusion of that interaction, Jesus went on from there and he healed a man with a withered hand in the synagogue. And then again, he, he, by healing that man in the synagogue, he broke their man-made rules. And again, after that, a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and Jesus healed that man, which led to a prolonged teaching section that begins in the middle of chapter 12 and goes almost to the end of chapter 13. All of this takes place in a really short amount of time just after the disciples return from their mission. And so as we come to Matthew chapter 14, 13, we see the disciples, nor Jesus himself, have really had any chance to rest or refresh themselves after their long period of continuous ministry. Luke actually records the feeding of the 5,000. He makes it specific. He says that this event took place on their return, meaning on their return from their being sent out by Christ. And as they were telling Jesus everything that they had done, it says in Luke chapter 9 that Jesus took them and withdrew and he brought the disciples to a desolate place. A desolate place meaning an uninhabited location, a solitary location, some quiet place where they could go to rest. As Mark records it, Jesus said to them, to the disciples, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. So Jesus wants to take his disciples and go and rest. 
and have a little bit of a time of refreshment with them. But as he takes the disciples, as he tries to withdraw with them to a desolate place for a little bit of rest, look what happens in 14.13. The crowds heard it, and they followed him on foot from the towns. So these large crowds who had been seeing Jesus heal and hearing Jesus teach, they didn't just, they saw the signs that he was doing, and they, they saw him leaving, and they recognized him, and they didn't just saunter on the shoreline on foot as Jesus went away on the boat. No, Mark tells us when the crowds recognized who it was in the boat and figured out where the boat was going, it says this, they ran there on foot from all the towns, and they got there ahead of them. See, the crowds hurried along the shoreline with great eagerness to hear more and to experience more of Christ's miraculous, wonder-working power. And I want you to realize that these men are tired. Our Lord Jesus Christ, being truly human, also grew tired and required rest. However, as they sought to find rest, they couldn't. And as the boat came up onto the shoreline, large throngs of people were already there, waiting with expectation for Jesus. Now, how do you respond to people crowding around you when you are tired and in need of rest? Look at what Jesus did, as Matthew said next in verse 14. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. You see the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ right here. While it was that he sought rest at this hopefully solitary location, when he saw the great crowd, he didn't say, hey, let's turn the boat back into the water and keep going. He didn't look at the crowd and say, everybody, just go home and leave us alone. He didn't rebuke them for not leaving him alone. He didn't tell them off for giving, not giving him any space. And I bet, or I would venture to say, that this probably crossed the mind of the disciples because later on you'll see them trying to actually get Jesus to dismiss these crowds. You can imagine the disciples saying, we've taught for days now. We are tired. We have ministered enough. Send them all home so we can get a little rest. But oh, I am so glad that Jesus is different than us. Jesus didn't express any irritation with these crowds. He didn't express any annoyance with these crowds. Instead, the text tells us he had compassion for them. He had compassion on these crowds because, as we have already seen in Matthew 9.36, they were like they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is the exact terminology that Mark uses when as the reason for Christ's compassion on the crowds as well. If you look at Mark 6.34, it says, When he went ashore, he saw the great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. These are leaderless crowds. Sure, there are leaders in, the, in Israel, but they're not godly leaders. These are not godly leaders who are calling the people to repentance. These are not people who have leaders to exhort them and encourage them and admonish them to obey the Lord. No, the leaders that they were given, the leaders they had at this point in time were leaders who would focus on their own status, on getting themselves rich, on ensuring that they had, uh, had power and influence. They wanted more than anything else to be the centerpiece of the people. These crowds didn't have people who wanted more than anything else to see them become an obedient, set-apart-for-the-Lord people, a people prepared for the Lord. So Jesus had compassion on these people. 
And this word for compassion here, it means Jesus was deeply moved by these people. Like it was an internal emotion. It was a feeling, a deep feeling of sympathy for these people, for their trials and their pains and their hurts and their difficulties. All of these things moved Jesus to care for them, to show concern for them. Jesus actually felt for these crowds, kind-hearted, tender-hearted, warm-hearted affection for them. And remember, these are the same crowds that he knows follow him around not because they want to repent, but because they get stuff from him. Jesus knows exactly who these crowds are. And he still feels compassion for them. He knows that these people know what they want, but they'd have no clue what they need. And what is it that they want? They want what all of us want. Deliverance from their worldly trials and their worldly difficulties. In a crowd this size, the number of individual problems, injustices, vexations, ailments, and adversity cannot be counted. And while their plights might be front and center in their own minds, Jesus knows what they truly need more than deliverance from their earthly troubles. They need what we all need, first and foremost, deliverance from our enslavement to sin. They need redemption so as not to face the eternal penalties that their sin deserves. And so Jesus will not send these crowds away. But he will once again show his power to them in hopes that they turn to him in faith. That they will heed his call to repent and believe the gospel. And so what did Jesus do for the people as a result of his compassion upon them? He continued to do what he's been doing all along. 14.14 says he healed their sick. This is something Matthew has been persistently reiterating over and over and over throughout his gospel. Go back to 4.24, for example. It says his fame, Jesus' fame, spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Again, in 8.16, that evening they brought to him, that's the crowds, many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. But Jesus doesn't leave it at physical healing. Physical healing was an expression of his compassion, but so also was, to equal measure or even greater measure, his teaching. Mark records that it wasn't simply the healing of the people that Jesus did while getting ready to feed them. But in 834, Mark writes that he began to teach them many things at the same time. And what was the content of the teaching of Jesus at this moment? Luke tells us in 911, he spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So you see, Jesus never lost sight of the fact that these crowds were human beings. He never treated these human beings as though they were annoyances, as though they were obstacles to be overcome. But he patiently, with great compassion and great urgency, continued to display his identity to them by mighty works and by calling them to respond to his command for repentance. This is how Jesus showed his compassion for the people, by alleviating their suffering 
and at the very same time calling on them to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The two things go hand in hand. The alleviation of suffering, the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. And in our day, it's very easy, isn't it, to see other human beings as annoyances. To see other human beings as obstacles that we must overcome on our way to securing our preferred mode of life. But such a disposition could not be further or could not be more opposed to the example that Christ has set for us in this text this morning. In many ways, this world is trying to get us to, to align ourselves against one another, to fight against one another. And many Christians now have taken an, a disposition of antagonism toward the world. Remember, remember the crowds. Remember Jesus' disposition towards the crowds. It was one of compassion. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. It's the same with our world. Bunch of people like sheep without a shepherd. These are people whose souls are in eternal peril. And we would align ourselves against them as though they were obstacles. And if, knowing that to be true, you still bicker and quarrel and insult when people get owned that are on the opposite side of your particular viewpoints on things, then you are not imitating Christ who came to seek and to save the lost. You are not imitating your Savior who showed compassion for those who have been blinded to the knowledge of Christ by the enemy. You are living a flesh-driven, Pharisee-imitating life. And the call is to be more like Christ. The twin responses here of compassion and proclamation go hand in hand. And while we might not have the same power and gifting to heal as Christ and the apostles did, we are still called to buttress and to adorn the proclamation of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ with deeds of compassion for our fellow man. We, above all others, ought to be known as people of compassion. Do you hear that? Our Lord Jesus Christ was compassionate and we ought to be known to greater measure, greater degree than any other group of people in the world as people of compassion. Because we, in showing compassion, we imitate our Savior who was himself supremely compassionate with sinners as he called them to himself. Now just let me make sure I make this clear. Compassion does not mean accepting or celebrating anyone's sin. It means calling them out of that sin to faith in Christ and encouraging sin is not compassion. Compassion is bringing people to liberty in Jesus. And so here, Jesus spent all day healing and teaching the crowds and evidently, the day was quickly coming to a close. And so, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said in 1415, this is a desolate place, 
and the day is over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Luke also records, send them away to go find lodging. In essence, they're saying, Jesus, you've been at this for a while now, but this is a desolate place. This is an uninhabited place. These people can't simply go pluck fruit from nearby trees or go to the local diner and buy dinner because there's none in sight. And these people have been here all day. They must be hungry. And yet, and yet at the same time, even though dinner time has passed, the crowds seem to have no intention to leave. They have no desire to leave. They may be hungry. They might not know where they're going to sleep tonight. But here they are still lingering. Jesus, unless you dismiss them, unless you send them away, it seems like they would be content to stay here with you for as long as they possibly can. And so the, the disciples come to Jesus because they're tired, saying, it's been a long day for you and it's been a long day for us. You've taught them, you've healed them. Send them away to fend for themselves now. Perhaps there still will be a shop open for them to buy some food. Perhaps there still will be an inn taking people in to sleep, to lodge for the night. And that would seem to be a, perfect, a perfectly reasonable request to us, right? I like to be out of people's houses by 9 p.m. I like people out of my house by 9 p.m. It's pretty reasonable. I love the murmurs. 9 p.m. <laughs> they asked him to dismiss the crowds. But the reply of Christ came back. Look at it in 1416. They need not go away. You give them something to eat. In other words, why are you so quickly washing your hands of their situation? You have noticed it. You have noted their need for food. You have brought it up. So now do something about it. See, the disciples, as we move through the Gospel of Matthew, you will note that they make a practice of dismissing people in need rather than helping them. You see this in chapter 15, as the Canaanite woman came crying to Jesus for help, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And Jesus remained silent as she cried out, and the disciples came to Jesus, and they begged him, saying this, Send her away! For she is crying out after us. And again later, as Jesus is ministering to the crowds, they brought their children to him, and they said, Jesus, can you lay hands on our children to pray? And it says the disciples rebuked the people. This seems to have been their default. These people have a problem, and we don't really want to deal with their problems. We don't want to lift a hand to help them, so let's just rebuke or dismiss or ask you to dismiss or send them on their way. This is an all-too-common tendency for us, isn't it? In his letter, James spoke of this all-too-common practice of trying to get out of helping other people in their times of need because it gets a little bit too difficult. It gets a little bit too inconvenient. And so we try politely to send people off on their way, to figure it out on their own. James wrote this, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? The answer would be, it's not good at all. And Jesus sees the crowd. He knows their hunger. 
both physical and spiritual, and he is going to provide for them the things that their body needs in order to teach them the larger and more pressing need, the need to partake of the living bread, Jesus Christ himself. And so Jesus tests his disciples with this command. John tells us that he, he, he gave them, he said this to them already knowing what he was going to do. And here's the word of Christ. You give them something to eat. The you there is quite emphatic. You give them something to eat. Jesus is challenging the faith of these disciples. They know. You know, I know. If any of us were there, we'd know this is impossible to do in our own strength. There is no way that they could ever produce enough food or buy enough food to satisfy the hunger of such a great multitude of people. But these are disciples who've been traveling with Jesus. They have been seeing his wonders firsthand. And they know also that they, when Christ gave them authority to, were performing miracles themselves. I mean, think about everything they've seen and everything they've experienced. And here's Jesus saying, you give them something to eat. Their response ought to have been a response of faith. Something along the lines of, I may not be able to do what you ask in my own power, but I have followed you long enough, Jesus, to know that you are able. I know that you are, if I trust in you, that you will help give us or give to these people what they require. If you have commanded me to do something, I can go to you and petition you, and you will give me the supply to do what you've commanded me to do. That would have been a response of faith. That would have been a response of trust, a response of confidence in in the power of Christ. But that is not what the disciples did. Instead, as John revealed, it was Philip who said this in Matthew 14, 17. We have only five loaves here and two fish. In other words, Jesus, what you are commanding us to do, what you are telling us to do, simply cannot be done. Instead of replying with, in trust and reliance on Christ, they default to the negative. All the disciples can see in front of them are the earthly resources or the lack thereof. They can only see the five loaves and the two fishes that are right before their eyes. And because they don't actually see the food there required to feed so many nor do they possess the money to buy such a quantity, even though Jesus is sitting right there, they automatically speak to the impossibility of Christ's command. John records Philip as saying, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Or in other words, eight months of salary wouldn't buy enough bread to give everyone here even just one bite. So that should really settle the issue, Jesus. Let's dismiss them. Let's send them on their way so they can all go out and buy food. Rather than focusing on the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ sitting in their midst, rather than focusing on the power of Christ, which they have witnessed over and over and over again, rather than recognizing, of course, Jesus, you can solve this problem. You can solve every single one of our problems. You are the solution to every single problem. Remember what the disciples have seen so far. They saw Jesus control the weather as he calmed the storm at sea. 
They've witnessed Jesus raise the dead, cast out demons, open the eyes of the blind. Just a few minutes earlier, they were watching Jesus as he was healing the sick in the crowds. And had they not heard about how Jesus turned water into wine at Cana, of course they would have. Disciples of the Lord Jesus do not have to worry because we have Jesus Christ. We look to Christ who meets all of our needs. The disciples focused on the negative, on what they lack as Jesus sits right there with them. The same Jesus whose teachings and healings have drawn these massive crowds and yet their response to Christ's test of their faith just seems so faithless, doesn't it? So despondent, so full of doubt, as though Jesus couldn't meet their need, as though Jesus couldn't address this situation. Now, before we go laughing at the disciples and their simplicity and their negative response, you need to remember, and I need to remember, that the disciples are simply mirrors into our own lives of frequent unfaithfulness. We too can get caught up in looking out at the world and all of its problems as those problems and issues land on our doorstep. And we could be just like the disciples responding in faithless, despondent tones all the while Christ is with us. Christ, who is fully capable of addressing our every need. Christ, who is fully capable of taking care of everything in our lives. Christ, who promised us to be with us to the very end of the age. You and I, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, we serve the resurrected Lord of all. We follow the same Jesus who, when faced with this impossible task of feeding 5,000 men besides women and children, miraculously accomplished, miraculously did the impossible. This is my Savior, the one for whom all things are possible. This is your Savior, if you believe in Him, also. So you, disciples of Christ, do not be like these guys were on this day, focusing on and anxious about what you don't have. But instead, always remember that with Christ, everything turns out for the best. You will ultimately be okay. Better than okay. Because while this miracle of feeding the 5,000 is quite impressive, what Christ did at the cross, bearing in Himself the penalty for our sin, was even greater. He took on Himself the punishment for the sin of all who believed. And if you put your faith in Him, you are saved, you are redeemed, you are delivered, and you are gifted with the most wonderful and beneficial of all rights and all privileges that that of being a son or a daughter of God Most High, and you are given all of the privileges and the benefits that come with that status. And while this might be true of us, while this is true of us who believe, if this is true of you, how can you focus on your lack of resources over everything that is yours in Christ? See, while the disciples focused on their lack of resources, here's what Jesus said to them in 1418. Bring them to me. Now you can just imagine Christ saying this in an are you really so dull tone, which he has said to the disciples already. Are you still so dull? 
all the while preparing to show the disciples and to reveal to the crowds that such a small, inconsequential amount as five loaves and two fishes is in the hands of Jesus more than enough to meet your need. What may look to us as short supply is in the hands of Christ ample to meet the needs of the multitude. And so Jesus ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. You see, most likely people had been standing this entire time. And you know how it goes, right? If you've been to a concert or you've been to a a game or something, there's always that group in the front row that stands up and that makes everyone else have to stand up the whole time. That's why if I ever go to a place, I want that seat right at the front so I don't ever have to stand up. So the people in the front are standing. Everyone behind them has to stand in order to see what's going on. And Jesus is about to perform a spectacular miracle. And so that everyone can see it, everyone must be seated. And after everyone sat down, the text tells us, he took the five loaves and two fish, looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples. The disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied. So we don't know how it happened, but from these five loaves and two fishes, Christ brought forth enough food to feed and to satisfy the crowds. And if you remember, you remember what Jesus said to the disciples, right? You give them something to eat. And what did Jesus do? He broke the loaves and then gave them to the disciples so the disciples could distribute them to the people. Christ called on the disciples to do something, give them something to eat, and then he furnished them and supplied them with everything necessary to accomplish what he had commanded them to do. They did give the crowd something to eat as Christ supplied them with everything needed to fulfill his command. Notice, Jesus didn't simply create a huge pile of bread nor did he create some record-breaking Guinness World Records loaf for everybody to go and take a piece from. He performed the miracle by giving the disciples piece by piece pieces of bread, and they gave them to the crowds. And it's the same for you and I today. Christ calls on you and I to care for each other's physical needs, and he has supplied, you may not agree with this, but he has supplied you with much more than you, have, than you need for such a duty. And so you and I, in obedience to Christ, are to give to our neighbors, to give to our brothers and sisters in Christ something to eat in the form of physical bread when they need it. Also, hand in hand, like we've been saying, we as Christ's church are entrusted with the spiritual food everyone requires as well, and we are called to dispense it. We are called... We are, we are told and commanded by Christ to call people to eat of the living bread, Jesus Christ, and that goes for every single one of us, whether you're young or you're old. Some of you might think, I'm too young to do that. Some of you might think, I've done my time. I've been doing this forever. It's time for me to rest. That's not a thing. You might be a new believer or a long-time saint, a man or a woman, rich or poor, sick or healthy, but the call to Christ is the same for you. You give them something to eat. Knowing that Christ is good, powerful, and able to supply you for the work that he calls you to do. Now at the outset of the message, I mentioned or referenced the political implications of this miracle as it butts up against the civil authorities of its day. I just want to explore this a little bit in closing. John tells us when the miracle took place. 
in chapter 6, verse 4 of John's Gospel. It says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now if you remember, the Passover celebrated the Lord's powerful work of delivering the Israelites from enslavement in Egypt. And in the night of Exodus 12, 29, it says the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt on at the feast of the Passover. This night when the Lord struck down the firstborn of the Egyptians and passed over the houses of the Israelites. On this night when the Lord accomplished this great work, Pharaoh and all the Egyptians rose up with a great cry and with great haste and great urgency, they sent the people out of the land. And from that moment to this, observant Jews have celebrated this occasion. And during the times of Jesus, each Passover celebration brought with it an increased messianic fervor, an increased expectation as they looked for, as they hoped for, as they kept their eyes peeled for, as they were desperate for yet another deliverer to lead them out of subjection to the Romans. Up to this point, they had languished under the rule of four successive nations, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and now Rome, and they yearned for the one that had been promised to them in Scripture, the one they assumed that when he arrived would immediately lead them to liberty and freedom. And so here comes Jesus, and he feeds the crowd feeds so large a crowd, and it immediately hearkens them back to the prophets in Scripture. Under Moses, you remember, under his leadership, the Lord fed the nation of Israel with manna as they roamed in the wilderness. We read it in Exodus 16. One morning, dew had gone around the camp, and when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. And the Lord in Scripture promised to raise up another like Moses at some point in the future, saying in Deuteronomy 18, I will raise up for them, Israel, a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And so here is Jesus working this mighty miracle of feeding the 5,000. And the crowds said in response, according to John 6.14, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world, meaning the one that was spoken of in Deuteronomy 18. He provides like Moses did, and perhaps he will be the man who delivers us like Moses did. Again, this feeding miracle of Christ brings to mind the miraculous doings of other Old Testament prophets as well. Elijah, for example, who promised the widow of Zarephath in the midst of a great drought in Israel, saying that her jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her, and her, he and her hus- household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. And popular opinion had already held that Il- Jesus was Elijah reappeared. Some said when they were they went and, a- and when Herod asked who this Jesus was, when they asked about him, some said, according to Luke nine eight, that Elijah had appeared. And still others said that Jesus was one of the prophets of old. Perhaps they meant someone like Elisha, who also performed a miracle like that of Elijah, 
when the wife of one of the sons of the prophets came to Elisha crying out to him because her husband had died and her creditors were all over her threatening to take away her children and to enslave them, all she had left was a single jar of oil. And so Elisha told her to go out and borrow all the vessels she could from her neighbors. And then it says this, Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. When one is full, set it aside. And so she did as he asked. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another. And then the oil stopped flowing. And she had poured enough oil out of that one jar to pay off her debts and to feed her family. Jesus fit the bill. He was the prophet like Moses. He was like Elijah. He was like the prophets of old. And all of this heightened the expectancy of the people who are celebrating Passover. And the sheer number of people in the crowds, 5,000 men, presents a standing army at the ready. And the people can feel it. They can sense the possibility of a political uprising. And perhaps Herod can sense it himself. But Jesus made no motions to such a position. He avoided all such political agitation. But as he's constantly delivered people from sickness and now from hunger to the crowds, this is a no-brainer. Here is the man who can take down those who rule over us and bring us to liberty. Here is the man who can organize us into fighting groups. We saw that, right, in the feeding of the 5,000 when Jesus told them to sit down in groups of 50. Here is the man who can lead us. And if he won't take the initiative to do so, we will force him to. And so we come to the crowd's response to this miracle in John chapter 16, verse 15, where it says this, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Few ever reject such offers of worldly greatness and power. In fact, far too many hunger for it and do whatever they can to lay hold of it. For anyone who thinks, you know, if I ruled, if I, if, if it was just, if I was in charge, things, everything would be fixed. That's what pretty much every wicked ruler and tyrant in the history of the world has thought on their way up to a throne. But you see what Jesus did? He rejected kingship on their terms. He withdrew from their agitations for revolution and rebellion. He withdrew to a mountain by himself to pray. It was not the will of his father. This was the will of the people. Jesus cared nothing for the will of the people. If you read scripture, you will see the only will that Christ cared about from beginning to end was obedience to the will of his father in heaven. And the will of his Father in heaven was not to ascend to some throne over an unrepentant people. And if Israel would not repent and turn to him in faith, he would not take the mantle of earthly king and lead them in the charge. But will instead seek to accomplish the will of his Father in the defeat of a much larger tyranny, that of bondage to sin and its ultimate result, eternal death. Now, you might have been in that crowd, had you been, Perhaps you might have heard the people around you responding. Jesus, don't you see what Herod has done to John? What an injustice! We must respond. We must fight back. To which Jesus would respond, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
But Jesus, don't you see that Herod is violating the law of Moses by living with and engaging in moral depravity with his brother Philip's wife? Which Jesus would say, you, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus always held deliverance from the great tyranny of sin and death out to the people's first and foremost. Because remember, governments come and go, but sin's damning power has remained from the beginning until now. Sin's damning power can only be broken by the sacrificial work of Christ. Only in Christ, by grace, through faith in Him, can the true tyrant of sin be defeated, crushed, and cast away from you. So while this feeding inspired the political heat of the people, Christ kept the main thing the main thing. And He actually goes on in the Gospel of John to explain the meaning and the purpose behind the miracle, saying this, I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So what can we take away from this miracle? First, in closing, first, have you eaten the bread of life? And by that I mean physical eating. The physical eating of the bread at the feeding of the 5,000 only addressed physical hunger, and that, even for, that just for a short time. But partaking of Christ, taking Him in, trusting Him as Lord and Savior is the food for the soul that is of such a quality that all who turn to Him in faith will never spiritually hunger again. Second, always look up. If you focus on what you have in your hand, whether it be five loaves or two fishes, it will never seem like enough. But with Christ it is. Instead of seeing things half empty as one without Christ might, you always remember that you are His child, that His Holy Spirit lives in you, and consider this sign of power and provision. And remember that with Christ, whatever you have is enough. Third, whatever it is that Christ has called you to do for the glory of His name in this life, whatever tests of faith that He calls for from you, remember that it is only by His power that you can accomplish it. Remember, he told the disciples, you give them something to eat, and then it was him who multiplied the bread and put it in the hands of the disciples so that they could give it to the people. It's only by the supply of your Lord Jesus Christ that you can do what he calls you to do. Fourth, see the crowds for what they are, sheep without a shepherd, and imitate Christ's compassion for them. Christ's compassion for a group deceived. Nothing of any value is accomplished by imitating the world's hostility-driven factions, divisions, quarrelings, and antagonism. And fifth, finally, always keep the main thing the main thing. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is wonderful. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is your soul's great desire and great satisfaction. And so be sure to look to Him above all earthly things for your hope for your joy, for your delight, and for your satisfaction. And may he be glorified in you as he supplies you with everything needed to do his will on earth. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you and we praise you for our Lord Jesus Christ, for everything he is for us, for all of the ways that he supplies for us. He supplies what we need physically, as we've learned in the Sermon on the Mount. He knows what we need and he gives them to us when we seek the kingdom of God first. And in an even greater way, he is the one who supplies for us the food we need for the salvation of our souls. And so I pray that if there are any who haven't partaken of the living bread that is Jesus Christ by grace through faith in him, that you would bring us to that place this morning.
that you would have us turn to you, believe in you, and be saved. And we pray this all in Christ's precious name. Amen.